Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 111 of Dogcast Radio. In a packed episode, we have top-notch advice from Dr Muriel Brasseur about why dogs mouth us and what to do about it. Basically, to a dog, its mouth, it's the equivalent of our hands. Okay, so imagine another per- or maybe like a child grabbing your hands to play, it's the same thing. We have the Dogcast Radio News, Buddy's Diary, a review of Ted Carisotti's new book and more. But before all that, we have a gripping interview with Karen O'Toole, who is the author of Orphans of Katrina, What Really Happened on the Gulf, and it's an amazing book. As you can imagine, this interview does contain descriptions of the distressing scenes and situations Karen witnessed in the aftermath of Katrina. Karen became very frustrated with the way the media coverage of Katrina was being handled, and how she was only asked about happy reunion stories. As she puts it, I realised the true story might never be told, the true story of a human and animal disaster so far-reaching and heartbreaking that the very people who lived it were burying it. So was it her frustration with that situation that led her to write the book? Yes, when I left Katrina, the last thing I had in my mind was writing a book about Katrina, and I just, you know... I, I was kind of up, you know, I, I had done it. I'd lived there on the streets for months. I kind of was glad to, in a way, walk away now and, and maybe get some of my life back and just, you know, go back into my life. I had done all that I could. I'd spent four months living on the streets. So I, I really didn't um, expect to spend the next five years with Katrina, too, babysitting her. By And by that I mean... People were saying that there were 50,000 animals left behind. There were over 200,000 animals left behind. Statistically, it's very easy to figure it out. And I even asked them, why are you saying 50,000? And they said, because we don't, people can't handle the truth. So, one, that's, that's 150,000 animals that suffered and died that no one was ever going to know about, number one. Number two, um, yes, people were asking me, do you have any happy reunion stories, any great, you know, fun, interesting, happy stories, happy endings? And, you know, Katrina was not the land of happy endings, but in order to sell books, you know, you people want more upbeat, happy stuff. They want to know that everything worked out fine, and that was not what happened at all. So there were books about happy reunions, and then there were books about animals swimming to safety. There was a beautiful uh, photo book done, but again, it's all animals being pulled out of houses and swimming to the cameraman, and everything's hunky-dory. Well, you know... 200,000 animals died there, and I have a story called City of Sorrow where I say their their last screams unheard, their final moments unknown, and we saw the horror of how they were left and how they died, and to never, ever tell their story and just let them go and be forgotten about it, I just couldn't do it. I I felt a responsibility, unfortunately, <laughs> to to have to be their voice. Yeah. You know, to have to tell the, the truth about what happened. It was an animal and human disaster so far-reaching and so otherworldly and so surreal to be there that even though I knew no publisher would publish my book and that I was going to have to pay for it myself, if I wanted to tell the real story, as a matter of fact, a lot of publishers were very interested in the book, but take out that photo, take out that story, That's can we put something happier here? And it, I said no. Yeah. And it cost me almost $10,000 to tell the truth. It's, I'll probably never reco- recover it, but at least I know that the truth has been told, you know. Yeah. And, um, and there were happy stories, and they're in the book, and there were beautiful stories, and stories of the, the love of animals and the loyalty for their owners what we got to see about animals, you, you couldn't, you left the Gulf with new found feelings of animals. And, and these are people who loved animals enough that they threw away their jobs and their lives to rush to the Gulf. And yet even we, you know, who were staunch animal lovers and advocates and stuff, even we found a new, a new love for them. Um, these are amazing animals. And uh, we, we all learned that, yeah. you know, the hard yeah. way, but, I, th- I mean, I think as a and it was as a human being, it was hard to watch the news footage. But you know, th- 
as an animal lover as well, there was that added dimension to it. You know, you appreciated, as you say, the animal suffering as well. Um, so how did you become involved? Was it literally just you watched the footage and you, you decided you had to do something? Yeah, I was the last person. I have a story in my book. It's one of the first stories. It's, it's called From a Sweet to the Streets my story. And literally I was in, I was in LA in a, in a, in a, in a hotel and I had gotten sick. You know, I work in the film industry and I'm sick and tired of actors and, and who's wearing spaghetti straps as opposed to strapless. Who cares? You know, who gained mm. 10 pounds, you know? And so I kind of like turned off the news and I wasn't reading the paper and I didn't know anything about it. And, uh, I was, I was on the living, I had rented a little place on the beach and a little apartment on the beach. And then I moved back into this hotel that I spent a lot of time in that year. I spent a lot of time in it. And um, I was in my favorite room. I walk in. I turn the TV on, and I, I'm seeing it, it looked like a, a TV show, you know, with a, the city underwater. And then I start realize, wait a minute, that's, that's an American city underwater. That's not a, a movie. That's real. And so Katrina had come and, and hit Florida first, come in. Everyone was watching her come and land. And she then the, the levees broke, and it wasn't even until like the next day that I knew any of this was happening. I had never heard of Katrina until she had already taken over New Orleans and the Gulf. So I checked out of the hotel in the morning, and I live in Phoenix. I rushed back to Phoenix to grab things, buy things, get clothing, whatever I thought I might need. And I flew to Jackson, Mississippi. Mm. That was the closest you could get to New Orleans, and that's 350 miles away. Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, if I could get into the city, or, but it didn't matter to me because I had to get on the road. You know, um, I, I had to go. It, it, I didn't know if I'd ever get in. I couldn't get a rental car in Jackson. FEMA had them all, and they were all sitting in a big parking lot um, mm-hmm. taken, and they're probably still sitting there. They never left, yeah. <laughs> but I couldn't get a rental car, and I asked, I asked around, and I was able to find a ride um, into the city with rescuers that were coming in from Georgia. So they picked me up. We talked on the internet and really the internet did a lot of work. The internet was really overworked for Katrina. Thank God for the internet. And I, I, I got a ride in and we were able to get in. We were very lucky because at that time, even owners couldn't get back in. Yeah. You know, it was, everybody was getting out of the city. It was very difficult to get in. Um, it was martial law. They were the, most of the police force left. Four people were shot by the police. There was looting going on. They were saying that it was the most toxic environment on earth, and all the bridges were down and roads were closed. And, you know, so we were lucky to get in, and um, we all ended up living, finding each other and living together in a supermarket parking lot. Yeah. It was on high ground. Yeah. All yeah. around us, but... So, I mean, that, I mean, that is, a lot of us were moved by it, but to actually go and live in a parking lot for four months, that's, you know, you really were devoted, weren't you? Yeah, and, well, you know, once you, once you got there, you were really sucked in. It was its own world. You you live in this surreal, it was like you were living in this third world country, a handful of people, all by yourselves with no rules whatsoever. There's no street signs, there's no electricity, there's no phones, nothing. There's nobody telling you what to do. As a matter of fact, if you're breaking and entering in a house, it would usually be a cop or a, uh, a military person that would assist you to break and enter into a house. You know, this, this doesn't happen anywhere in the world where, no. you know, that kind of a thing. So you really got into this culture. There was this, this we were our own... We were renegade rescuers. Up north, there were the big national groups with all their rules and regulations. And we were the, quote, we were called the renegades. We lived in the city. We lived by our own rules. No one could tell us what to do. And, you know, it it was kind of, thank God, because we saved most of the animals because the other people lived four and five hours up. They'd have to drive into the city, rescue an animal or two, and then drive back out. We were there from dawn to dusk, we knew where the animals were. We were doing all the breaking and entering. So even though they said renegade with a bad tone, thank God we were there, you know, in that city. So, um, but uh, yes, you know, when you're going from a hotel and now I also, they lost all my luggage on the way there. So I arrived with nothing. I was living on, I found a vagrant, um, a comforter, a really oily, dirty, filthy, old, smelly comforter that some vagrant was using. I, that was became my bed, and a bag of 25-pound um, dog food was my pillow. And we had the police and the military, not the police, but the military, the National Guard would walk the parking lot at night 
to make sure that we weren't shot. They were fully armed, and they would make sure that we weren't shot so we could sleep. But, you know, like you said, you're there for months, but when you're laying in bed at night, you know, there's no electricity, so when the sun goes down, it's pitch black, and you're listening to dogs barking Mm. in distant houses. And, you know, at first there's 20 or 30 dogs barking all around, way out in, in the suburbs, and then... You know, a week goes by and there's 10 and then finally there's that one dog who barks to you all night long and Mm. you can't find him in the morning. You know, he quiets down and, you know, so it's, you can't leave the city. You know, if you leave that the death march that's going on is going to continue and you're one more person. There were so few people that you just couldn't leave, you know, there was no one else. Yeah. I mean, you you've talked about um, breaking and entering and and rescuing the animal, actually getting them out of the house. But of course, as you point out on one of the videos on your site, to an extent, that's the easy bit. Then once you've got the rescue done, you've got an animal that you've got to look after. And then you've got hundreds of animals you've got to look after. And I mean, in one of your videos, there are just dogs, dogs in crates as far as you can see. I mean, it, it was hellish, wasn't it? Well, it was hellish not only when you got the animals, but before you even got them, you would be in a suburb that was ripped out of a horror novel, a page out of a horror novel. There's not a person, not a bird, not a sound, not a car moving, and you could go for 50 blocks and not see another person. But we didn't know where the animals were, so that was the first major dilemma was that, where are they? So you break into a house, it's a lot of work, it's it's 115 degrees and it's humid, it's so hot that you can't even breathe. So you break into a house and it's full of mold and it's even moister inside and more humid. As a matter of fact, the, the men in the hazmat suits would go into the same houses that we'd be coming out of with no mask, no equipment. Mm-hmm. They'd have full white like space suits on and they'd tell us, you're going to kill yourself. And we'd tell them, dead body in the back room, and they'd go in and get it. You know, we were, we were always way ahead of them. But anyway, you, you didn't know where the, the dogs were. You might see a little glass porcelain chihuahua in a window upstairs and think, okay, maybe they're dog lovers. We'll break in here. Or you might see a water fountain in front and say, okay, they like birds. They like nature. Maybe they have animals, and you break in there. And you might be wrong. You might then miss, you miss the next house that has five dogs locked in the back room. But you don't know, and it doesn't look like they're animal lovers. You don't know. You just can't break into every house. So we missed a lot of them. We missed so many of them died listening to us break into the next house, which was the wrong house. And then you've got the animals. You're exactly right. Then all of a sudden you've got these animals. And at first, you know, we're just stealing food from the grocery stores, from the the uh, local Walgreens, you know, the drugstores, whatever we could find. We, we've also got not only dogs and cats, we've got ferrets and birds and, you know, parrots, all kinds of animals that we're not experts in caring for. So we've got to find bird food and ferret food and cats. We need litter, kitty litter for their cages. We need cages. Yeah. You know, we at at first we're just tying animals to the handicapped parking poles in the in the parking lot. In fact, in my first story, my story from the suite to the streets, you see my bed laying next to a handicapped parking pool, and there's dogs tied to it. Mm. We didn't even have cages. And then slowly, people start sending cages in, and it reaches us and food in. And so then we've got this whole, an army of people came in. When I say army, maybe 30 or 40 which for a whole city is nothing. <laughs> so um, then you've got all these animals. We've got to get them out of there. There's no gasoline, to Remember this, that there's no gas stations open. There's no services open. So when animals die, you've got stolen hefty bags that you stuff them in and put them out on the street. But there's no garbage pickup. Mm. So you've just got bags full of dead animals around you. They're not going anywhere. They're rotting right there. You smell them all night. Um, there's no pickup, there's no gasoline station. So we have to send somebody out with empty gallon jugs. They go out of the city far enough up north, fill up the gallons, bring them back in so that our cars could move around. We'd be putting in these gallon jugs so you could go out. And I mean, everything had to be planned and plotted. You couldn't just jump in your car and drive off. You yeah. know, yeah. It, and you'd be surprised the little things. There's no toilets, there's no showers. So you're filthy, dirty. There's no way to clean clothes. 
So you take a small bottle of water that you could find somewhere, maybe even in a house. We would take, like, if they had a water bottle or something. Then you go on the side of the supermarket in the night, you strip, you dump the little bottle of water over yourself, squirt it on, and then get back into your filthy clothes and go to bed. Mm. You know, you know, there's nowhere to go to the, there's no toilet, there's absolutely nothing. And so the hardships are great, but there are, the fact that we were there rescuing made the hardships look like nothing because we knew in the next morning that we might go out and save, you know, 12 cats and 15 dogs and three parrots. So who cares that you, you don't, you know, you're going to the toilet on the corner and there's dead dogs all around and you don't have a shower and there's no light and who cares? You know, you're eating old granola bars and it didn't matter because you were so adrenaline. You had so much adrenaline going to go out there and save these animals. You know, it was really amazing. It was totally amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. And in some of the photos on your site, um, there was, there was a sign, you know, a a homemade sign saying dog locked in house. Um, and there's, there's a a lot of graffiti on the houses about, you know, either dog rescued or something. So did some people try and leave you messages and did you have to leave, you know, sort of a graffiti, a message on as you rescued an an animal? Yes, actually, no, people did not leave us messages. Those Mm. messages that were left were, um, either military talking to us, but most of the time it was rescuers talking to other rescuers. And I also have a story in my book called um, The Writing is on the Walls. And it talked about how we would communicate with each other by writing on the walls all the time. And if you saw one dog, there was interesting, there was a, a time there was one dog in attic, and we were in this area. And because there were so many rescuers in that area, well, it was near our Winn-Dixie parking lot, we always assumed that someone got the dog out of the attic, that someone had written that and someone had, and then one day, like three weeks into it, we look and there's a dog looking out from the attic and we're thinking, oh my God, nobody got that dog. We, we just assumed, and everybody assumed someone else got it because it wasn't far from the rescue site, but in fact, everybody assumed somebody else got him and that dog was sitting there, you know, practically yeah. dying because, you know, we just all assume somebody got him because, you know, but really I have, I show stories where the writing is very intense, where it says, um, German shepherd on site of building left food and water. Then a week later it says no shepherd seen left more food and water. Then a week later it says, uh, shy shepherd under the house left food and water. And then finally it says shepherd DOA side of oh. building. So we were telling stories, like the next person came and go, I didn't see him, but I left water, you know, next person. I saw him, he's under the building, you know. So we had huge conversations that would carry on for weeks back and forth, you know, about what the situations. And and really the, the walls of the buildings became the billboards for us to talk back and forth. Mm-hmm. So it was a really fascinating um conversations and I put a lot of the photos in my book to see the conversations going back and forth you know that's how we spoke because you'd never see any rescuers yeah yeah. you'd read you'd read from them but you'd never see them they're long gone in another area you know so it was the best of times and the worst of times you know yeah and I mean it was it was a huge task in just in terms of sort of organization because um when you'd got the animals, if you got them early enough, even if they weren't in a dreadful state, you had to get the vaccinations and vaccinate them because you got so many animals together. You were microchipping them, weren't you, so that you could then keep track of them? No, we weren't microchipping them, actually, and we weren't giving them vaccinations. Oh, right. Usually when we... No, really. Usually what, what happened was... And that's, that's part of the big problem, the whole, the whole identification of these animals. Most of the animals that we saved never got reunited with their owners. Mm-hmm. And um, we were not microchipping, and we were not vaccinating either because, yeah, you know, we're living in a parking lot. We don't have even food for them, so we don't have vaccines and microchips. And then what happens is, is that all we have is the, the minimum. And let's say a vet shows up to help for the week. Some vet gives up their business in New York, drives to the Gulf, gets in there, helps us out for a week, and then they move on, and then maybe a vet tech's left or another vet comes in. So it's a constant influx and outflux of people and very few supplies. So basically, we could give these animals the most basic care, for example, like hydrate them, because most of them were dying from starvation and dehydration. So we would give them emergency care 
and hopefully if they didn't die, we would send them up north or send them out of the city, like a lot of rescuers would be leaving, and they would be driving out. We'd say, okay, take these four dogs with you mm. out to, to Boston or wherever you're going. we we got to move them. We just had to keep moving them and moving them. We had to get them out of there. We had to feed them and walk them and clean their cages and at the same time go out and save the ones that were dying in the city. And we never had enough hands, so everything was minimal. You know, you... You didn't take a dog for a nice long walk. You took a dog to she hopefully went to the bathroom and you threw him back in this cage and you were gone. You know, yeah. it wasn't about, you know, big, big microchipping and things. So because there was no microchipping going on and because those dogs that were microchipped in the city, um, their owners are now gone. Their phones are disconnected. So even when you call, you never found the owner if mm-hmm. they were lucky enough to have a microchip. And, um, you know, so... Um, the, the paperwork didn't work. The paperwork that followed them didn't work. A lot of times we didn't know the address. Everything was underwater. There was no street signs up anymore. Or the animal was running down the street and we grabbed him. We don't know where he came from. Most of them didn't have tags. This is the thing. You must put a microchip or a tag on your animal. And if you're in a disaster situation, make sure that that microchip is updated with your information. That was a big deal. Actually, I saved a beautiful long-haired shepherd from a house that had a microchip that was now defunct, that the phone number no longer worked. And this this long-haired German shepherd was of such high lineage that she ended up on the cover of the United States American Kennel Club German Shepherd magazine. Mm. She was one of the top of her field, yet we never got her reunited with her owners because their chip never worked. And she became a service dog. She now works for a blind person in California. Wow. That's what happened to her. So believe me, if her owners knew that she was, you know, they would be desperate. They are desperate to find her still, but... Yeah. And I mean, some of the dogs, I saw one dog that you got, you pulled out of sort of trash on the street um, and he managed, you rehomed him. And That's a story I have called At Long Last Love. Yes. It was about a dog that it was a beautiful, beautiful purebred Doberman that was found in the garbage on the street with all the throwaway furniture and things that were wet that the owners pulled out of their house and threw for a garbage pickup. And this dog was lying on top of it. And the neighbor said, this dog is still alive. And they said, he'll be dead by the morning. And that's when the neighbors called rescuers and we got involved and we got this dog, veterinary care, urgent, urgent care. This dog weighed about a quarter of what it should have weighed Mm. and was pure bone. And anyway, we got this dog into a home, or I should say they got this dog into a home where this dog was so loved. And, you know, right before he died, he was at Christmas and he was wearing a Christmas Santa suit and being hugged by a Santa Claus. And, you know, but the dog unfortunately had so much kidney and liver failure and other failures from starvation and dehydration for seven weeks being locked in a home with nothing that the dog died right after Christmas. But at least it it was at long last love. At long last, this dog was thoroughly loved and was not going to be ever thrown out again, you know. But um, there was a lot of, it was a city of sorrow, I, I have to say. Um, there's a lot of sad stories, but there's a lot of funny, happy stories too, you know, um, which which I had to always dig deep because I kept thinking, well, i got to come up with something happy now. What's the good that came out, you know? Yeah. You know, because you know, there was great stuff. There was beautiful stuff. There was friends that we've met that we'll never forget and, times that we spent and animals that we rescued that, you know, we got at the last moment um, that, that we'll never forget them and they'll never forget us. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you say, with the time you were there, um, because you were four months there when you living, as you say, rough, and then you, you were helping on the internet for months afterwards, still trying to reunite people, weren't you? Right. I worked for stealth for a while and then I worked on my own. I was running ads in the local newspapers in New Orleans. You know, if, if you've lost a pet, contact me and things like that. And, you know, owners really didn't have a way to find their pets because if the pets were put on Pet Finder, which is a, in the United States, it's a national 
um, internet, let's say, group or company that shows pets that are lost and found and just a big pet, like a reunion area. And these people, they a lot of them didn't know how to use computers to begin with. They had no idea. And a lot of them that they lost, that lost everything and were sent to Houston or Seattle or wherever they were relocated to Atlanta, Georgia, they'd have to go to libraries and they were living on somebody's couch and now they'd be in the library and allowed one hour and they'd sit there crying, searching for their animals online. Um, And they had no photos either. You know, when here's another thing. If you're going to, you should always have your animals photos in a Ziploc sealed bag that the floods cannot ruin because everybody who had animals they couldn't even show a picture. This is my dog. This is what he looks like. Mm-hmm. They'd have to say a brown, medium-sized dog. Now, there's millions of those brown, medium-sized dogs in shelters and on the Internet. When you don't even have a picture of your animal to show people, you know, to put it out there and say, oh, yeah, that's the dog that I have now. That's the brown dog with the one white ear. I've got him. Nobody could find their animals. And we learned some valuable lessons um, tons of valuable lessons. And what well, the government learned too? They learned that you cannot separate people from their animals. Mm-hmm. Never again will they say you cannot take your animals. Mm-hmm. The government learned that. In fact, what they did now is that FEMA monies will go to each state. And if the state has to prove that they have buses or ways for the people to stay with their animals if they had to be evacuated, and if they don't have that set up, FEMA doesn't give them any money. They lose a fortune. So everybody's making sure that they're set up for yeah. this so they don't lose money, you know. So yeah. um, so we shouldn't have this, well, you know, the states shouldn't have this um, animal loss on such a, a scale again. No, and also, you know, a lot of people died to stay behind with their animals. Mm, so yeah. many people, there'd be like that one person on the block who says, don't worry about it, go on ahead, I'll stay back with all the cats, and everyone brought their cats over, mm. and she had 19 cats, and she died drowned in her house with 19 cats. And that happened all over the city. They say approximately 40% of the people who didn't leave didn't leave because of their animals. And so many of them died, Mm. you know. I mean, it's it's a nightmare scenario, isn't it? Do you... do you stay and let your family go and you stay with the animals? Do you all go? Do you you all stay with the animals? It's just a nightmare scenario. It's heartbreaking. It's a, it's a nightmare, and what people don't understand is a lot of people look down on the people from New Orleans. How could they leave without their dog? I would never leave without my dog. But the people that live on the Gulf have been through hurricane warnings four and five times a year, and it's a really big hassle when an entire city, imagine if everybody in London suddenly has to leave. Mm. There's no gas because everyone else has the gas. There's nowhere to stay. You stop at a fast food place, there's a line for the bathroom, it's 500 people waiting to use the bathroom. There's no food anymore. There's no ice. You can't find hotel rooms or you have to move in with your family and nothing happens. And then you drive all the way back into the city because nothing happens. Now, when you're doing that three, three and four times a year, maybe five times a year, sometimes you're getting these hurricane warnings. You don't leave. And honestly, Katrina didn't do a thing. Katrina knocked over a few a few trees, honestly. She broke a few very high windows in office buildings, like 20 stories up, broke a few windows. That's it. Mm. But the levees went, and yeah. that was the game changer. So the people who were there, I mean, nobody expected this to happen. Nobody. No. And those left, you know. And I know I did a pet profile on one woman who left every year. She left four and five times a year. You know, because she was being so diligent, and she brought her animals out and everyone out. And then this time she thought, you know what, I'm just not leaving again. I can't afford it. I can't afford the gas, the hassle, you know, my, I, <laughs> I forget it. And she stayed, and all of her animals died. Oh. And, you know, and she ended up in the attic. And, you yeah. know, so, um, but again, you know, you also got to see the best and the worst of people, because then you had, like, the St. Bernard massacres, where the people brought all their animals to the local high school, and as soon as they were left, they were told they could not leave with their pets, that they had to leave, go to the levees and get on buses, and be flown and driven and boated out. So they all left, and then when they left, their animals were shot by the police. And they were massacred, every single one of them at close range. So... Mm. The police decided, we're not going to care for these animals. We're not dog sitters, you know. Mm. And they just said, hey. 
And, you know, so again, it was the best of times and the worst of times. It was the best of human nature, and it was the worst of human nature all at once. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so yeah. I, I, all of you see, and here's the other thing is that, like, we've talked at the very beginning. It's like, why did you have to write this book? Why? Because these stories were not being told. Yeah. You know, yeah. nobody, nobody was talking about what it was like to break in NRL day. What was it like to have police guarding you at night so you weren't shot in, in, the, in the middle of the night? You know, what, what was it like to not know where the animals were and they're dying all around you? And the clock is ticking loudly and quickly and you're running, running, running. And just, the, you know, two rescuers committed suicide. Really? You know, that's, right. that's how bad it was. That's how traumatic it was. And none of this was being told. It was almost like, you know, it was, a, it was the, the cliff notes or the, uh, the short version of the truth. And yeah. I felt that the people and the pets of the Gulf deserved, like, the in-depth story of what really happened. It's like kind of like covering the Holocaust, but not mentioning that people were being gassed there. Yeah. Just talking yeah. about the buildings, you know, these, mm. these buildings and the people were all crammed in there and how, how hard that was to live crammed in, but not yeah. telling the real truth, the depth. You know, the parrots were stolen out of the city. Um, mm. We had a, a case called Barkinsaw where a woman showed up. She said she was a, an aggressive dog expert, and we were glad to get rid of the aggressors because you can't walk them, you can't feed them, you can't get near their cages. So she took them. But little did we know she was a, a serial dog collector, and she took them to Arkansas, and she had 450 animals sitting out in cages, dying with no food and no water. And a lot of these animals that survived Katrina now were locked in a cage in a field in Arkansas and died in those cages. Oh, good grief. In a, in a case that we called Barkinsaw. Now, mm. nobody talked about Barkinsaw. Nobody talked about the stolen parrots. Nobody talked about rescuer suicides. Nobody talked about... Because everyone, you know, you want to get your book published. You want to get the story out. And the best way to do that is make it palatable mm. for everyone. And, and that meant lying. Well, not lying, but just hiding a lot of the truth. And honestly, a lot of these people that did books didn't know this stuff because they didn't live in the city. They were people who wrote books interviewing people like me. Mm. And, you know, like I'm in books that people interviewed me to find out what happened in the city. So they don't even know what to ask, you know. Yeah, yeah. They have no idea what was going on. Wow, some incredible stories and experiences there. I can quite see why Karen had to share what she'd seen and done and felt. One very brave and determined lady. You can find out more about Karen's experiences at orphansofkatrina.com and we have a link to her Facebook page on the Dogcast Radio site. Pitbulls have been used with great success as therapy dogs, as well as search and rescue and narcotic and bomb-sniffing dogs. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. Hello and welcome to the Dogcast Radio News Desk. I'm Kate. And I'm Nick. There's been a lot of fascinating research emerging recently. Researchers at the University of Padua in Italy have found that dogs not only recognise their owners' faces, but they much prefer to look at that face than that of a stranger. Conversely, despite their strong sense of smell, the dogs had difficulty recognising their owner when they had their face covered. During the study, a dog's owner and a stranger walked back and forth in front of the dog and then exited the room via different doors. When the dogs could see the humans' faces, they paid most attention to their owner and went to wait at the door they had gone through. However, when the humans' faces were covered, the dogs were much less attentive to their owner, indicating the dog relied on faces to identify familiar people. The researchers suggest that dogs paying so much attention to faces is the result of thousands of years of domestication and interaction with people. We've all seen our dog shake to dry itself after a swim or bath and scientists have been investigating this behaviour. After analysing slow-motion video footage of various animals shaking, researchers have established that wet dogs and bears shake at around the same frequency of 4 to 4.5 hertz, with hertz here referring to the amount of skin oscillations per second. 
By comparison, the smaller the animal, the faster the shake, with cats shaking at 6 Hz and mice at an incredible 27 Hz. But you don't need a scientist to tell you that if you stand too near a wet dog when he shakes, you're going to get very wet. Did you know that dogs can be pessimists? Well, apparently they can, and dogs with a more negative outlook on life are more likely to suffer from separation anxiety. A team at the University of Bristol School of Veterinary Sciences in England investigated canine characteristics by studying rescue dogs' responses to empty and full food dishes. After accustoming dogs to a food bowl in a particular location in a room containing food, while one in a different location in the room contained none, empty dishes were placed in a variety of locations around the room. The dog who hurried to the bowls were regarded as optimistic, while those who approached more slowly as pessimistic. By observing the dog's behaviour, when left alone, the researchers noticed that the optimistic dogs were more relaxed, coping better without company. It is hoped that the research could help identify rescue dogs more likely to suffer separation anxiety and give prospective owners information and support as well as finding the dog's suitable homes. And talking of pessimistic dogs, apparently Jennifer Aniston's dog Norman has been suffering. When Jennifer noticed changes in Norman's behaviour, such as not responding to her as usual and lacking enthusiasm for walks, she consulted a dog therapist who diagnosed depression and prescribed antidepressants. Norman, who is a Corgi Terrier cross, has reached the grand old age of 15, so it's good to hear that Jennifer is doing her best to ensure he has a happy old age. Meanwhile, the UK's most famous dog lover, the Queen, has been very worried as several dogs have fallen ill after visiting the Royal Sandringham Estate. The dogs develop vomiting and diarrhoea, as well as dehydration and lethargy, and it is feared that this is a return of the disease that killed many dogs in late 2009. The Queen has turned to the Animal Health Trust to get to the bottom of what's going on, and visitors to the estate have been given questionnaires about their own dog's health. Theories include poisonous fungi and blue-green algae, but so far there have been no definitive answers. Currently, the advice is to keep your dog away from the area. And that's all from us today on the Dogcast Radio News Desk. Goodbye. Poodles originated in Germany and were used for hunting, water retrieving and even herding. We were contacted by listener Louise Billet with a problem regarding her dogs and biting or mouthing behaviour. In her email she says, The one who does it the most is a six or seven year old rescue chocolate lab called Annie, who is from a rescue home, but has been with her current owner a while and spends a fair bit of the holidays with me whilst her owner is away. She doesn't seem to have had much training, but will sit and give a paw on command. She gets very excitable, and when she does, she will chew on my hand in a playful way, and she grabs whatever hand she can. She does it very gently, but I'm curious to why dogs do this. She also makes growly noises when she does it. When she's out playing with Ruby, our Labrador, or is playing with another dog, her thing is to bite the other dog round the neck and pin them down. She can be quite aggressive and forceful, and it does worry her owner when she does this. She hasn't injured any dogs, though. Shep, as you know, is another rescue dog, quite timid sometimes, and has only done it occasionally, in the same way as Annie, gently and playfully. But as he doesn't get overexcited like Annie, it seems odd that he does do it to me. He, like Annie, is as gentle as a lamb, and there is no pain when he does it. I think maybe he's attracted to my bracelets round my wrist, but he doesn't do it to anyone else. He is much more obedient than Annie. I suppose the question is, why do dogs do this? Should they be discouraged? And do many dogs do it? Well, we arranged for Louise to put her questions to zoologist and experienced animal behaviourist Dr Muriel Brasser. Um, I've got a, a German Shepherd who's three years old and he keeps on um, trying to grab my hand, mm-hmm. bite it and growl at me. He's only doing it in a playful way, but um, I was just thinking about why he does it and whether it's anything to worry about. OK. So, Muriel, what would you say to that? OK, um... Hi, Louise. Obviously, I read your email as well, so um, I know that um, that's Shep you're talking about, isn't yeah. it? Um, you're describing what Shep's been doing, but also you've been describing 
what Annie's been doing, haven't you? Yeah. And she does something quite similar where she gets excitable, grabs your hands, chews your hands and makes growly noises. Yeah. Okay, so, because um, in your email there were two different, two different behaviours, so that's one of them. And what Annie's doing and what Shep are doing there, that's the same thing. And you are on the right track. It's basically this soliciting play. Okay. Right. So they're bored, they've got a bit of excess energy, they're just probably a bit hanging around and a bit frustrated and they want to play with you. So yeah. they're grabbing your hands. Basically, to a dog, um, its mouth, it's the equivalent of our hands. Okay, so imagine another per or maybe like a child grabbing your hands to play, it's the same thing. Right, okay. Okay, so that's basically all that is. Um, I know you also ask whether it's a good idea to discourage it or, you know, whether it's okay to let it Yeah, go. just don't worry because sometimes we have children coming in out of the house and stuff and other people that aren't too keen on dogs. Um, well, what yeah. would normally happen is, obviously, these are, um, I know Annie's a rescue dog, I don't know if Shep was. Yeah, Shep's a rescue dog as well, are those rescues? Okay, so you see, um, probably as puppies, uh, they weren't taught something called bite inhibition. Right. which we, we now know is a good idea to teach puppies between the ages of 6 and about 20, 20 weeks. It depends on the dogs. It's usually between 16 and 20 weeks. Um, so this is basically, you know, a mouth to a dog. Um, they, they use their mouth to touch everything when they're puppies because it's basically the way they get to know the world around them. So they're mouthing everything. You know, they go through that crazy phase where they just can't keep their mouth off anything. Yeah. And it is normal behavior. But obviously, it can be problematic if it becomes excessive and it persists yeah. into adult, adulthood. So normally, you would teach the puppy about inhibition in, in where you would teach the puppy to decrease the force of the bite mm -hmm. and then to stop biting your hands altogether. So you would redirect the chewing to suitable items, you would teach a puppy to chew chews and toys and that sort of thing instead of your hands. Now, obviously, it's a bit more problematic when when the dog's an adult and does that all the time. So there are several things you can do, but yes, it's not a good idea to sort of let it go on because it's basically telling the dog it's okay to use its mouth. Okay. Yeah. So if it was to to develop any aggression for any reason, it's less likely to think. Oh no, I can't use my mouth. You know, it's, do you know what I mean? So yes. for yes. that reason, it's probably a, a best best thing to do is to discourage it. And there are different ways you can do that. The easiest thing to do is when you, you know, when either of them is chewing at your hands, is just to gently, gently put your hands behind your back, get up calmly, and walk away, and just keep doing that. Yeah. You know, um. But obviously, one thing you need to look at is the reason why they're doing it as well is they're perhaps a bit bored. So you need to look mm -hmm. at their energy expenditure. Yeah. You know, are they bored? Do you, need, do, you, do you need to take them out for longer walks? The other thing as well, obviously, which a lot of people don't know, is that you, it's a good idea to actually play games with your dog three or four times a day, you know, for about five yeah. minutes. Yeah. Um, there's a fantastic leaflet uh, on the Blue Cross website, which I think is called Playing With Your Dog or something similar, which explains exactly how to do it. Okay. There's a right way and a wrong way of doing it. Um, so not only you need to deal with trying to sort of stop the behavior, but you need to deal with the fact that they want to do it and that they need to do it, and it's a social need. But yeah. it needs to be di redirected to the proper game. And, it's, and it needs to be... Not when they're soliciting you to play. It needs to be you that initiates the games. Right, okay. Yeah? <laughs> that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, plenty. <laughs> so that's basically that. Right, thank you. No problem. If it, you know, And if you find that doesn't work, you can also teach them the off command where you teach them to, to take their... You know, or leave, that's another one. Mm -hmm. you know, where you teach them to actually take their, their teeth and their mouth off your hands and you reward them for... Yeah, doing so as well, but obviously you need a trainer to show you how to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it it's, it doesn't sound like it's anything to worry about. Oh no, no. Mm. It's perfectly normal behaviour, but yeah, you don't want it getting out of hand. Sorry, <laughs> bad play on words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and I guess one of the other things is obviously with with a German Shepherd. It's quite a big dog and a big mouth and lots of teeth. And it, that's even more off-putting, isn't it? Because you think, oh, my goodness, you know, it, it, that sort of reputation of, you know, possibly being fearsome is in the back of your mind, isn't it? Yeah. 
especially because he's a rescue as well. I don't really know what his behaviour was like in the past. Um, but uh, as I said in my email, he's as gentle as a lamb, really. Um, he, he tries to be dominant, but he can't really get around in our house what, with four women and uh, the father and another dog. Yeah. Well, it's probably, you know, I won't go into dominance. Because that's the word that Brenda's about a lot, but it's probably nothing to do with that. No. It's probably, yeah, there's probably another reason. So, you know, perhaps he needs to spend, expend a bit more energy. Perhaps he needs to play a bit more. Mm. Um, what was I going to say? Obviously, there are people that, you know, will see a dog and it won't bother them because they understand dogs. But some people can, yeah, oh, God, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So some some people are more tolerant than others when it comes to to that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. So, yes, America. He's um, starting to be a lot more playful now than when he was when he first arrived. We've had him, I think, um, seven weeks now. Oh, so okay. Maybe not that long. So, um, and he's three. Yeah, he's starting to be uh, two of his previous owners because um, it rears his fourth owner, which is um, uh, unfortunate for him. But he seems to settle down well. But his first two owners were... Um, older people and they couldn't look after him and then the next owner um, was nagging him all the time and wouldn't leave him alone and um, just telling him to, too many commands for him. Oh, okay. Um, so the dog's home took him off him and then gave him to us. Oh, so okay. I don't think he's really been taught anything, any sort of games. So I'll have a look at that website you recommended. Yeah, have just a little bit. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'd like it if it was a bit more playful but he is getting more playful. How old did you say he was? He's three in November. Okay, so he's a youngster, really. Yeah, he is. He needs to play, he needs to have a lot of energy expenditure with a German Shepherd as well. Yeah. So, um, right, yeah. So we probably just need to look at that. But if you're finding he's becoming more playful, he's probably relaxing a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's all good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, because I'd heard, um, is it true that this mouthing behaviour can be caused by anxiety? can be but there's usually a whole load of other behaviors that come with it right. so it just it would depend i wouldn't need to look at the whole picture it would depend what else he's doing yeah yeah um you know if you find that he's um like drinking water excessively sniffing the ground yawning a lot averting his gaze that sort of thing you know all the signs of anxiety then there's usually one or two other signs with it yeah. You know, if he's just doing that, then it's not likely to be. No. no. And it's not one of the common ones, to be honest. No. Okay. It, th- these myths get started, and that's what I'd heard. So. I mean, you, you know, just about anything can be stress. It just depends <laughs> how you need to look at the whole dog and the whole, all the different behaviours to actually be sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Louise, are you happy with that then? Yes. Lovely. Thank you. Are you happy with Annie then? Because you had that other problem as well. Yeah, Annie was uh, biting the dogs around the neck. Yeah, because that's she's that's something else. That's something different. Yeah, she's she's um she's naughty for that. Can we say? She, um, yeah. Whenever she's out playing with another dog, like her, she gets on really well with my other chocolate lab. I've got a chocolate lab called Ruby, and she gets on perfectly well with it. They're quite happy. They'll both sit in the, at my house together. But when they do go out, Annie will go for the throat and yeah. pin Ruby down. And yeah, Ruby picks awesome. it up off Annie as well. So Ruby started doing it. But Ruby she belongs to someone else, doesn't she, Annie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what the owner needs to do there is look at the training. Um, mm. When that sort of... I mean, it's probably why she found herself in rescue in the first place. And she's obviously a very ambitious dog. And when dogs play, they also can test their strength against each other. You know, yeah. I don't know if you've heard, but sometimes you get play behaviour. And it can cross over into aggression. So she's probably a fairly uh, confident and a fairly um, ambitious dog, and she's testing yeah. her strength there. So with that problem, it's trickier. You would normally need to look at the relationship between the owner and the dog, and mm-hmm. you would need to to crank up the training. Yeah. So, you know, you can sort of mention that to your owner. Yeah. Because that's Older. something you definitely do not want it to get any Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something that's horrific for the the owner of the dog that's being got by the neck because it just looks so nasty, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes. And it can, in some cases, like I said, it's a grey area where play behaviour is occurring, but they can cross into. All of a sudden, you know, the switch goes off, and it yeah. can cross into aggression if it gets a bit too boisterous. So, it, what you find when that's happening, when she's doing that to. Um, 
to Ruby, I would intervene and I would just snap yeah. it and, you know, redirect, just distract anything, but just to see break up the intensity. Yeah, I do try and break them up when they do do it because it's obviously I don't want them doing it. Yeah, even if it's just playing, I don't want either of them getting hurt. Um, well, yeah, I do try and discourage them. Yeah. Again, I suppose that's a bit, little bit more difficult because it's somebody else's dog, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So um, it depends whether Louise wants to have a word with Annie's owner or not. But I think, for the, I mean, it's probably one of the reasons why Annie found herself in rescue. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. So um, you know, she probably got a bit too much for the last owner. Also, she's a chocolate Labrador, isn't she? Yeah. There are, um, I don't know if you know about chocolate Labradors, but... There are two, well, there were originally, you know, there's probably more genetic lines now, but there was originally a very sound line. Um, but eventually there was another line that was very unsound that, that could be traced back to some backyard breeders. Oh, right. Um, this is why sometimes you hear people say, oh, I've got a crazy chocolate lab. There is one genetic line that's not very sound behaviorally, and they can be quite a handful. Mm. No, I don't, I'm not saying she was from that line or anything, but it's possible. Yeah, she's um she's actually a really good girl. Um, oh, excellent! Very Probably good not then. <laughs> yeah. she, no, I don't think she is. She's, she does all the commands. Um, she'll sit, lie down, and she gets excitable when I see her. But because we've got a good relationship, I think it's. I mean, but, yeah, she's, she's neutered as well. Yeah, she's been neutered. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Labs are incredibly boisterous, though. I remember my my mother had a German Shepherd, and she was told, and this is going back sort of. Um, 20 years when we first had more than that uh, 24 years and she was told if if the dog does does something really naughty you know you scruff him you take him out of the scruff of the neck and you shake him because that's what the mother would do now i know that's not uh, sound advice you know nowadays but that's what she was told so then when i had my you know and this worked on the german shepherd because he would just go into oh i'm 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 in disgrace now and he would stop whatever he was doing and, and that worked with him when we had our labrador then Buddy was, as a puppy, was doing something naughty, and Mum sort of said, "Right, I know what to do now. You scruff him." So she got Buddy by the neck and scruffed him, and he just sort of turned around and went, "Oh, you want to play rough? Great!" And he 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 wasn't, you know, disgraced at all. And they're just they're such a funny, you know, you can't offend a Labrador, <laughs> you can't put them in disgrace, and they're really really boisterous. Yeah, the thing is, um, I should probably this is quite important to make that clear. You know, that's the first. The first thing you described there with the Labrador being scruffed and being, you know, stopping mm. is in disgrace. What probably happened there, what we actually know happens now, is that he was probably thinking to himself, I'm being scruffed, I'm going to get hurt, I'm going to shut down. Mm. That's what we believe happens when you do that to a dog now. You know, some dogs decide I'm going to get hurt, I'm, not, I'm just going to play dead, or I'm going to get hurt, I'm going to turn around and bite the person. Mm. Mm. Now, obviously, with the puppy, he's thinking, ooh, you know, boisterous, pans and play. Yeah, he's thinking you were playing. Yeah. But there are several scenarios that can occur out of that, and most of them aren't very good. No, no. As, as I say, this was going back 24 years, and... and yes. You know... Um, I thought people still do it, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. But yes, I mean, they are... You know, I mean, they're not all the same, but no. generally they do like a bit of a, a bit of a play. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so um, if if we have a follow up in a couple of months and see how both situations are going, and you know, check that Louise is happy with that. Yep, that'd be lovely. Yep. <laughs> Excellent. Quite easy. Yeah, ch- just check that leaflet to download, and it's all explained on there, and should be no problem. Thanks to Muriel Brasser for her wonderful advice there. And the best of luck to Louise with both Shep and Annie. We have links to Muriel's Oxfordshire Animal Behaviour Centre as well as her Twitter account. And if you'd like to download the Blue Cross leaflet on playing with your dog, we have a link to that as well on the Dogcast Radio site. I'd just like to emphasise that I don't advocate the practice of scruffing dogs. I don't and haven't ever scruffed either of ours. It was just an anecdote that occurred to me showing some of the typical differences between a German Shepherd character and a Labrador character. Thank goodness that the nature of the advice our trainers give us has changed and improved over the years. And thank goodness for experts like Muriel, who know exactly what they're doing, and more to the point, can tell us what we should be doing to make life the best it can be for our dogs. At one time, Border Collies were considered a vicious breed of dog. 
it wasn't until Queen Victoria became a fan of the breed in the 19th century that collies became popular with the public. Buddy's Diary Hello, Buddy the Black Labrador here. Not so long ago, I went to the first Dog Olympics right here in the UK. I had no idea what an Olympics was, but it turns out it's a place where dogs and humans get to play games together. Some games involve fetching, some walking slowly, some sitting still and some barking. When the dog and human are playing the game, all the people watching clap and cheer. And then at other times they'll all laugh. I think the dog that got the loudest laugh was the winner. And I'll let you into a secret. I got the biggest laugh. Our team got rosettes with a three on them. And that's more than one or two, so we must have won. I can't count very well, but I think I've got that right. After the Olympics, our team went for a walk on the beach. Imagine it, 12 dogs and our people racing along the sand, paddling in the sea, and generally having fun together. It was my best visit to the beach. And I'm glad there were so many dogs with me who knew how to really have fun at the beach, because humans haven't got a clue. Humans do dig at the beach, but they use a spade, not their hands. That's no fun. They will jump over waves, but they miss out on the fun bit of biting at them. That's the best bit. The other odd behaviour humans have at the beach is to do with shells. As we walked along the beach, the humans kept looking down, every so often bending down, poking at the sand. Then they'd stand up and show their companion something, often saying, Ooh, that one's lovely. I thought the humans must be finding food of some kind, so I went to have a good sniff around, but I couldn't smell anything to eat. Some of the shells smell as if they once had something good to eat in them, but sadly it's gone long ago. And they're not any fun to chew up, because they go into really small sharp pieces that stick into your tongue, so I can't understand why people find them so interesting. Recently my people introduced me to something else that smells good, but you can't really eat it. Scented bubbles. Some smelled of bacon and some of peanut butter. I love peanut butter. We played a great game where my people blew lots of bubbles and I had to bite as many as I could as fast as I could. I had some help from Star and the cats, but I caught the most bubbles. Generally, I am a peaceable chap and don't like chasing anything much, apart from those pesky pigeons that keep daring to come into my garden. But bubbles are fun to chase and catch. Bubbles don't play fair though, because just when you've caught them and you're going to give them a good cue, they disappear, pop, and they've gone. I've never known anything like it. I'm sure if I catch enough bubbles, I'll finally catch one that doesn't disappear and I'll give one a really good cue. Something else my people have been playing with lately is a laser light. They get it out quite often to give the cats a run around and those silly cats chase round madly after a tiny patch of light. How silly is that? Light isn't real. You can't catch it, you can't smell it and you certainly can't cue it so what's the point of chasing it? Funny thing is, though, that when I've watched that light bobbing about the place for long enough, a strange feeling comes over me. I have to join in the fun. I have to chase that light. Then the humans have to watch out that I don't trample their feet as I career around in hot pursuit. The cats give up while I'm in action. They recognise a superior hunter. Or maybe they just don't want to be trampled either. I'm not quite sure. They keep a lot of their opinions to themselves. When it's all over, I feel such a fool, because I know it's just a light, but that's instincts for you. I suppose at the end of the day it's how you look at things. If bubbles or lights or even shells are fun for you, then enjoy them. But you humans aren't as good as us dogs at finding the fun in things. For example, we figured out that the best use for socks is tug-of-war, while you humans just see them as foot coverings. Well, I'm off to see what fun there is to be had. Till next time. The hairiest dog breeds in the world are probably the Old English Sheepdog or the Commodore, while the least hairy breeds include the Mexican Hairless and the American Hairless Terrier. Lennox is an American Bulldog cross. His mum was a pedigree American Bulldog and his father was a cross between a pedigree Staffordshire Bull Terrier and a pedigree Black Labrador. 
Until recently, Lennox lived very happily with his family and two other dogs, a Yorkshire Terrier and a Boxer. His owners regularly foster other dogs for many shelters and have had Lennox neutered, microchipped, insured, DNA registered, pet safe registered and licensed with the council every year since he was a pup. None of the family dogs are ever off leads in public and Lennox is always muzzled, not because he is a risk to anyone, but because, as the family put it, of the stereotypical view of others. In other words, the family has been just about as responsible as they could have been. So far, so good. But on Wednesday the 19th of May 2010, he was taken from his family home by Belfast City Council, as they believe he falls under the Dangerous Dogs Act for Northern Ireland. Appallingly, Belfast City Council took Lennox from his loving family home, using a wrongly addressed warrant and using copyright ADBA, American Dog Breeders Association, Breed Standards Guide, which the council were never authorised to use, and in doing so the council broke international copyright laws, for which they have received a cease and desist order from ADBA. Even worse, since Lennox was taken all those months ago, his family have not been allowed to have any access to him, and a photo given to them by the council shows he is being kept in the most dreadful, unsuitable conditions. Lennox's family are asking for your help to get him home. Of course, we should all rally round Lennox, simply to alleviate his suffering and that of his family. But if you need further persuasion, look at your dog, curled up on the couch beside you, or whatever he or she is doing right now, and just for a few painful seconds... Imagine how you would feel if he was wrongly ripped from the heart of his family and locked up for months away from you under sentence of death. It's devastating, isn't it? And yet if the dog community doesn't work together and exert pressure on Belfast City Council, if we stand by and allow this to happen, apart from the trauma caused to one family and their dog, who knows what we open the floodgates to? Let's get Lennox home and let's make sure this stops happening to dogs. My dogs, your dogs, any dogs. You can read the full story and find details of how to help Lennox on the savelennox.co.uk site, which we have a link to on the Dogcast Radio site. Now, onto a happier subject. If you're lucky enough to write a book that captures the heart of the dog world in the way that Merle's door did, how on earth do you follow it? Well, author Ted Carasotti has very wisely left the talking up to his current dog, and the result is Pucker, the pup after Merle. The main feature of the book is the beautiful illustrations, but there is enough text to keep Merle fans happy, and more than adequately bring us up to date. The first photo is a lovely shot of Ted and Merle, followed by a poignant shot of Ted, alone in a vast, snowy, but significantly barren landscape. That was where Ted was when the story left off. He had loved and lost Merle after many happy years spent living and learning together. He was alone. Ted enjoyed reliving his time with his beloved dog, writing Merle's door, and then going on tour promoting the book and meeting his readership. But eventually, the time came when he was ready to find another canine companion, and that's where Pucker comes in. Pucker is a gorgeous large yellow lab, who is actually very reminiscent of his predecessor. Pucker tells his story from being a tiny puppy through his first six months. The photos are beautiful, and I frequently interrupted my reading of the book to share a picture with my husband and daughter. Oh, look at this one, I'd tell them, or, oh, you have to see this one. It's that kind of book. It's delightful. Not only does Pucker's book tell his story... It delicately intertwines Ted's continued journey of moving on and also includes great tips on how to bring up a puppy. I hope many readers will pick up ideas on puppy and dog raising. Pucker has certainly been well socialised and he lives a life most dogs would envy. Pucker gets to meet an impressive array of wildlife, lots of people and of course the other dogs who live in his neighbourhood, sometimes with unexpected results. He goes canoeing and mountain climbing and, of course, has his own take on all of this. Happily, Merle is lovingly remembered and referred to. He may be gone, but he is not forgotten. One of my favourite shots in the book is an interior of Ted's house with Pucker learning to wait outside the kitchen area while Ted cooks. 
Merle watches over them both from his portrait on the wall. Another joy of the book that all dog lovers will relish are the pictures of Ted and Pucker cuddling. There can be no doubt that Ted and Pucker have embarked on a love story just as much as Ted and Merle did. Pucker means genuine or first class in Hindi, and that's just how I rate his book, first class. Being the pup that came after Merle, Pucker had some big paws to fill. So far, he is managing that beautifully, and I think he will be just as loved as Merle was. You can find more details of Pucker, the pup after Merle, on the Dogcast Radio website. And until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. By phone from the UK, you can contact us on 0121 288 From the US, you can contact us on our American number, which is 315-849-2022. From any other country, you'll need your international exit code and then 44121-288-0922. You can contact us on Skype with the ident dogcastradio. That's all one word, dogcastradio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What do you get if you cross a dog with a computer? A computer with lots of bytes.